I'm Poppy Okocha and you're listening to Unearthed, Journeys into the Future of Food from Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. We've talked about some enormous global issues across this series. and When we look at problems and solutions at that scale, it can sometimes leave us individuals feeling a bit helpless and small. So in our penultimate episode, I want to start bringing this back to our oldest and most fundamental relationship with land and food and that is the way we are growing and producing it. Right now, I'm standing in my own garden in Devon. To my right, the chickens are pecking in the fading squash patch in autumn. When I became a grower myself, I found I began to relate to the food I ate in a totally different way. If you've ever had a veg patch, window box, or have ever grown something from seed, you'll know exactly what I mean. Growing a plant takes work and patience and love, When you produce something yourself that you can eat or use, you value it differently to something you could just pick up in a supermarket on your way home from work, because you're deeply connected to the story of how it came to you. And actually, it makes you look completely differently at all those abundant veg aisles and shelves that we've been able to take for granted in UK shops and supermarkets for so long. So how do we mend the problems in that relationship and still make sure we have plenty of healthy, affordable food for everyone? And how do you make sure that what we're growing is sustainable and good for the planet too? Let's start this episode by getting real about our relationship with food. Many of us are more conscious of the impact of the food we eat on our health and the environment. We're thinking about food waste in our meal planning and wondering how the ingredients from our takeaways are mealed out are sourced. We're having fewer sugary drinks but still tons of sweets and chocolate. We're eating less red and processed meat than we were 10 years ago. But some of us are eating even more saturated fats. And your average person still doesn't get enough fibre. The result is that our health is suffering with preventable diseases such as heart disease and some cancers. So what's to blame? Busy lives, convenience foods, supermarkets, advertising, supply chains, educators, the government, or ourselves? And where are we heading? Back with us are Professor Phil Stevenson and Dan Saladino. The consequences of diets that are poor and that are based on intensive farming systems that produce limited diversity in the diets that are heavy in fats and sugars are diabetes heart conditions, cardiovascular disease. In fact, in the UK, diabetes alone costs the NHS 10% of its entire budget. And that's almost entirely avoidable through improvements in our diet. The fragilities we're now seeing in the food system, I think, reveal how complacent we've been for so long in depending on this system that we thought would just carry on forever, producing huge amounts of food, regardless of the impact they were having on the planet and our health. But humans do adapt, and we are seeing responses. So how has globalisation brought abundant food to many, but distanced many more from its production and left us vulnerable? And what is the social impact of these imbalances? Let's head to Edible Science, Kew's kitchen garden, to find out more from the experts. Hello, I'm Dr Caroline Cornish. We're here today in Kew's kitchen garden, which is where Kew scientists and horticulturalists grow vegetables and fruits. And they're looking to produce these and find out the best varieties for nutrition, but also for sustainability. 
Hi, my name is Dee Woods. I am an urban agroecologist, cook and food policy advocate, among other things. Traditionally, most cultures would eat what was available locally and seasonably. And now we transport food across the world. For many people, they can't afford to buy the variety. I think London is amazing in that it offers a variety because we are quite a diverse city. But for a lot of people, they can't afford that. And it means they buy cheaper food and things I wouldn't even call food. But I think there's also this disconnection with land and with where our food comes from. You talk to the average child or young person, you know, food comes from the supermarket. Bananas come from the supermarket. They can't imagine that it grows somewhere and you have to cut it off. And We've lost a lot with modernization. And I think my work has always been about reconnecting people to where their food comes from and understanding, you know, that we're part of that agro sort of biodiversity as, as well. That's the importance of community gardens in that we're not just growing food. We have that social and cultural aspect as well as the health benefits. What do you think is broken in that global relationship, if you can call it that, that we have with food? We've always traded food. It became broken when we had sort of big corporations taken over and things became commodities. Within that, we had enslavement, we had indentureship and the beginnings of so much inequity that still remains within this global food system. So the fact that farmers in Uganda produce beans for the market here and they can't access any of those wonky beans is part of what's broken with the system. So on the one hand, we need cheap food. Cheap food historically has often involved the exploitation of people. On the other hand, we need sustainable food to increase, if not maintain, biodiversity. So bring back more variety into our diets and also for purposes of food security, stop being so reliant on just a few plant species. Is this trying to square a circle? Are there ways that we can tackle these issues equitably? Okay, for me, it isn't about cheap food. I think we should banish the word cheap. For me, it's about good food. And good food includes sustainable food, nutritious food, a wide variety of foods to choose from, and mainly plant-based and not so much animal protein. Being able to afford it in the first place. So we need to be producing more fruit here. And by doing that, it should make that food much more affordable. The impacts in terms of climate as well, because we're not shipping it from all across the world, would be better. And localised production would create jobs for people. So we're actually reducing some of those inequalities by producing more food here by producing more varieties here. 
One thing we learnt during lockdown was that if you have access to vegetables and fruits of your own, you are in a much stronger position when the shops are shut or the queue for the grocery is, is you know, three times around the car park or whatever. Exactly, and I think short supply chains, localised food production shone during the pandemic and that's what we need to build on and lessen these long supply chains of getting apples from New Zealand and beans from Uganda when we can grow beans very well during summer and spring here. As we're rethinking how we transport and supply food globally and how this can be done without exploitation of local producers or other nations, work is also going on to learn about and reinvigorate nutritious local varieties too. Key partners with organisations and communities around the world to champion and share the benefits of indigenous plant and fungal knowledge. Dr Nicola Kuhn is a research fellow in Kew's Ecosystems Stewardship Department. She's working on a project in South Africa's beautiful Western Cape to understand which regional species are most nutritious and resilient in the face of climate change. Researching plant response to climate change really goes back to my childhood. Growing up in the Western Cape of South Africa in amongst the Fainbos, which is a really diverse biome. And I saw that at the extreme edges, there really are particular traits that allow plants to grow in the drier limits of biomes. I wanted to apply some of these ideas to food systems and understand the implications for food systems. Many of the regions that are also actually experiencing some food insecurity issues due to changing climates or drier climates will continue to see further climate change and increased aridification. So... This is really a chance to look at alternative options that we can maybe use to supplement our diets. Modern diets consist of very few species. We eat less than 0.1% of edible plants. So I think firstly we're not actually using or utilizing enough of a variety of plants. And this variety or diversity has been shown to have quite good health benefits. So in terms of something like gut health, people are discovering that the high diversity of plants you eat, you end up with greater gut microbial diversity that comes from these plants. And this has been shown to actually enhance immune responses. We are collaborating with a wider group of stakeholders. This includes growers and farmers and chefs and, of course, traditional knowledge holders. And the idea is to really reintegrate these foods into local foodways by trying to understand if they have climate change resilience potential, so whether they're going to be hardy in the future or not, whether they are nutritious, and whether people actually enjoy eating these plants and whether there's some sort of cultural history that can be preserved by reintegrating these foods into the food systems. One of the examples that you'd come across quite frequently would be something like dune spinach in the dunes of the Western Cape. It's a ground-covering type of plant and it grows on sand, so it really doesn't have highly nutritious soils that it is tapping resources from. Dune spinach is really tasty, so it can be used just like a normal spinach, although it is more of a succulent type of leaf. 
and so it can be cooked and normally you'd in the drier season you would prefer to cook it the leaves become quite shriveled themselves whereas in the wetter season they can be used in salads so one of the other examples that we're looking at is the ice plant which grows in a lot of the western cape but also the northern cape it's a plant that's often used in salads because it's got a crisp and crunchy slightly salty taste and what is quite unique about it is that it can grow in quite low water input environments additionally there's a benefit of sourcing locally where there's less time for plants to actually lose the nutritional value and the time truly feels quite ripe for a project like this because we're already seeing that going local is becoming quite valued and almost on trend and so we want to use the momentum and that excitement around local foods for the region it's it's seen quite clearly as an opportunity to co-create future foodways that are resilient to climate change that are diverse and tap into the diversity of the unique plants in the western cape and that are sustainable and equitable dr tiziana ulian works with communities ngos and organizations across south america and africa My team here at the Millennium Seed Bank focuses on the use of the seed collections to support sustainable development. And for this, we really work a lot with local communities and collaborators, of course, on the ground. We are able to ask the local communities what are the most important plants for them including food plants and uh, after understanding the priority plants we can support them for example in the cultivation of some of the species but also on the conservation of the seeds of these species plants are very important for their local diet but also some of the plants they can be medicinal plants so they really rely very much and much more than us here in, in Europe on the use of wild species we talk uh, about conservation through use and uh, in fact uh, it's really by giving the value of the plant species that you can really bring in the conservation because if you value for example food plants a wild food plants then you're bringing a value to the species at the same time you are really helping the conservation of these species because in the wild a lot of these species are disappearing because of habitat destruction so we are really helping them to bring these species into their food system here really showing you <laughs> a different kind of species from this uh, different part of the world they're all food plants but also some of these food plants they have other uses which is also very important where you try to uh, preserve them so my first example here is the baobab that perhaps is better known worldwide and is a huge tree that grows in different parts of africa is really big fruit and inside the, the fruit you have all the seeds that you can see in this jar okay so in this jar you have some of the seeds and both the fruit and the seeds are used recently the fruit and the seeds that are used they're made it into a powder 
and uh, which uh, nowadays you can even find in the UK. And at the same time, it becomes part of the value chain of the UK products, but also will help local communities to increase their income at the local level. In fact, uh, the baobab is rich in vitamin C and the powder can be used for breakfast uh, with yogurt uh, or even with porridge and so on. And this is really an icon of the whole landscape. So it, it's, uh, it's really somehow a tree that uh, gives a lot to people in terms of food, medicine. Also the leaves are used as medicine, as a shade. But also inside the trunk, you can find water. That really explains why this tree is so important in, in Africa and uh, culturally as well. I would like to give you some examples of uh, species uh, that are used in Latin America, in particular agave and cacti. In fact, both agaves and cacti species, they grow very well in, in dry environments. So as you can imagine, this really could be potential uh, future foods under climate change scenarios. This agave, like a lot of other agave, they produce flowers. And uh, some of these flowers are actually edible within tortilla or in their dishes. So they're actually very delicious. On top of that, they can grow in very dry environments. So really, again, kind of tasty, but also nutritious food for the future again. Similarly to agave, we have the cacti, the Opuntia cacti that sometimes we can find even in the Mediterranean areas. is actually originally from, uh, from Mexico, from the Mesoamerica. And while in the Mediterranean region, maybe they might eat the fruit, in Mexico, not only they eat the fruit that is actually very rich in vitamin C, but also the pods of the cacti, like in a salad. <laughs> so the pods are really delicatessen and it's really a normal component of the diet in Mexico. There's so much to be gained by leaning into food traditions and looking at the plants that grow locally in different climates. If you're listening to this, you're probably thinking more about the right foods to eat for you and your family's health. As well as environmental sustainability, your carbon footprint, fair wages and conditions for producers. And that's a lot to consider. But on the other side of the equation are the millions of people experiencing starvation and malnutrition worldwide right now. These are people without those choices and due to changes in economics, climate and local resources, aren't able to get the nutrition that they need. Earlier this year, a World Health Organization report found that 828 million people are suffering from hunger globally. The UN Sustainable Development Goal of ending hunger is in reverse since the pandemic, and the climate crisis is exacerbating this. Some experts now think that by doubling global consumption of beans and pulses, we can make a difference. Certain beans, legumes and pulses can require a lot less water and fertiliser to grow than the wheat, rice and maize that we rely on for more than half of our calories. And they can be richer in nutrients, also enriching the soil with their nitrogen-fixing properties. But on the other hand, they might have smaller yields and provide fewer calories pound for pound. So how can the humble bean help shift the dial in the right direction? I'm uh, Dr. Kasper Chater. I'm a research leader in the Crops and Global Change team here at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. Here we are sitting in the uh, kitchen garden, also now known as Kew's Edible Science Garden. 
we know a lot now and we're knowing more and more how having beans in your diet really helps your natural gut bacteria your 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 flora and that has really great downstream effects into old age you you have reduced incidence of cancers and other lifestyle improvements by eating a varied diet with a high amount of beans and pulses beans and legumes have performed a really vital role in agriculture everywhere on the planet where agriculture has been developed and the reason being is that they have a lovely relationship underground in their roots with symbiotic rhizobial bacteria and these bacteria in the roots fix nitrogen from the atmosphere that the plants would not otherwise be able to use and it's that nitrogen fixation that nitrogen fixing capacity that makes beans so healthy that's what brings the high protein levels in the seeds and in the leaves so if you eat your beans if you eat your green beans or peas then you're benefiting from that relationship directly but we do actually eat a hell of a lot more beans than we know everyone who eats chicken is reliant on soybean protein that chicken is being fed from soybeans imported from probably the brazil or, or elsewhere near the amazon unfortunately by eating chicken we're contributing to that form of agriculture so reliance on chicken is great in that we're using uh, plant protein but not so great if you want to reduce those air miles and reduce the carbon footprint and also the impact on deforestation and if we want to really improve our food systems really improve our diets we have to become more self-sufficient both in our legume growing so growing beans within Europe within the UK so we don't have to import from long distances and that we're self-sufficient in terms of protein sources and carbohydrates you can grow soybean in the UK particularly in the in the south and southwest and there are varieties suitable for the UK with climate change we are beginning to be able to grow things that we haven't grown before there are chickpeas that can grow in the southeast, lentils that can grow in the south, and of course faba beans or broad beans have had a very, very long history in the British Isles since the Neolithic period. With the use of more legumes, pulses in our diets, we can eliminate meats as long as you have the other minerals and proteins that you require and that's usually balancing it with grains like you would anyway. So for example, in Mexico, you eat your beans with your maize because that's a complementary diet in the same way as lots of other cultures around the world have their rice with their lentils etc i really love to make a dal which okay it's a lentil it's it's not very bean like but it's certainly up there with the pulses and other legumes and my daughter really loves some some black beans with her tacos we're just going to have a little wander around the kitchen garden now and have a look at a few things that we've got growing here. On my right we've got common bean and we've got the runner bean. So Fasciolus coccineus has got beautiful red flowers whereas common bean usually has white flowers. Now the red flowers 
are kind of showing off to birds particularly, but also to insects. And that really shows you their pollination method. They really rely on birds and, and insects to set pods. That's another thing about the biodiversity crisis. If you don't have your insects and you don't have your birds, then you're going to have a pretty bad yield. Now, common bean is slightly different. So common bean is a white flower and it usually selfs, which means you don't need the birds, you don't need the insects to rely completely on, on, have, on setting pods. So here we have some beautiful soybeans. You asked about whether they grow in the UK and, and yes, they, indeed they do. Now, the major point about soybean is that they're grown for cattle or grown for poultry mainly. It's not the fact that they're soybeans at all. It's just the fact that they're grown for animals which require much, much, much more land for producing much, much, much less meat. So it's more about a, a numbers game. It's, it's more about the land use and the footprint, so the amount of land, the space required for producing food directly for the human diet, as in you know, growing beans to eat rather than beans for animals to eat, uh, is much, much less. And there needs to be a consumer campaign to kind of improve the image of beans and people's interest in beans and awareness that beans are a really important part of every person's diet on the planet. Who doesn't love a lentil dal? It's fascinating to hear what experiments are taking place in Edible Science, Kew's kitchen garden. And by growing beans and pulses locally, we can reduce carbon footprints and improve our nutrition. Of course, not every kind of bean can replace the same essential amino acids in meat. So combining them with other foods is key to better nutrition. But I wanted to find out more about another important health benefit of growing food. And that's why I went to meet Jane Rogers and her team on the other side of Kew's London site. We're here today at Kew's community allotments. We're surrounded by lots of green trees. It feels like we're in a real oasis. But we can hear the road. We're definitely in London. It's a nice patch of green in the city. Jane, it is lovely to meet you. Who are these people in this garden with us today? I'd love to hear about this project. Welcome to Walking Wednesdays at Kew's Community Allotment. On Wednesday, we have members of the community, people who are underrepresented. I predominantly work with people from homelessness charities, often food banks and refugees. I also work with people with learning disabilities and other people introducing them to horticulture. And then on the Wednesday, once they've done a course with me, they can come along and tend the allotment. We um, share stories, we share food, we laugh a lot. We have lots of cups of tea and it's lovely to have you all here. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Projects like these get me so excited. It's just so inspiring hearing them. I'd really love to hear a bit about your story and how you ended up running this group. There was a real push. Kew are really passionate to actually start looking at under-representation in Kew. I mean, it's such an amazing, beautiful, beautiful gardens. And yet, a lot of people don't feel it's for them. That It still feels quite austere. It's a walled garden. And so my main job is to get underrepresented people to come in, understand that horticulture is for all, and teach them some Kew science and work out exactly what botany is and not to be scared of it because none of us speak Latin. So, yeah, they're just absolutely connected. We've got people who came on the very first day that I worked here and we thought there'd be a through journey that, that there are places that I find for them to go and learn horticulture, but they're actually still here. They are really connected and now they're the next trainers and they look after everybody and they, this space really is part of, of their well-being and their life. 
Mm, that's really beautiful to hear. Yeah. I feel like it sort of leads on to the next question really nicely, which is, in what way do you see these kind of community growing groups as really important in filling a social need that we maybe don't necessarily have met in our modern lives? I feel like that's so applicable to some of the people who are engaging with this. Yeah, massively. I think we all found it, didn't we, in mm-hmm. lockdown? Mm-hmm. And everybody now is growing a tomato, which just fills my heart with joy. <laughs> people who don't think gardening is for them, just seeing the magic that soil just being outside, just being left alone, just pottering, maybe killing something inadvertently, but getting over it really quickly. It's just like so important for everybody. Being outside in the living world is really important for our well-being. And how have you seen that in your role? What's your experience of that? Um, I was a lone voice shouting for a while, mainly on the top of like Croydon car parks for ages, saying how great soil is and how good it is to be outside. And then it's really nice to see the books coming out and all these papers coming out and all the research coming out and my inbox at Kew is filled with really enthusiastic young excited people going I do well-being walks I do nature journaling why don't I come to Kew and I can show you how to and I'm like yep that would be amazing come and show us that would be lovely and it's actually younger people and because of the word diverse audiences, especially at Q, is so important to actually bring people in who are then bringing their community. So we've got some Ghanaian growers coming in, um, hopefully to curate some food stories for other Ghanaian growers. We had an amazing Duke Basie come in to do a sweet potato workshop with a huge amount of Jamaican growers from, from London came to see him. The little Robin's been sitting on the bench yeah. next to us listening to that and nodding along as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. This place by nature is a bit of a refuge. Sometimes I just turn up here and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling particularly sociable, but I'll sit here in this corner and it's like a little nook, you know, you can, you can watch the robins shoot up and down and uh, the occasional magpie. It's, it's a happy space and sometimes the, 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 the birds and the, uh, the bees look happy too. When it comes to wellness and networking and including people that are normally either on the margins or choosing not to be included are being um, really well looked after. We've got quite a good range this year. We've started with lettuce, um, with tomatoes, potatoes. We've got some masa, some okra. Yeah, lots of different types of vegetable chilli we've done as well. And uh, we've got some lemon verbena over there as well, which is, I mean, it's all about the community spirit as well. For us to be given the chance to come volunteer and just come in and generally help, it's an amazing thing. And like I said, Jane, Jane's helped me a lot as well because, you know, I've been through a lot of different things and uh, it's just nice to come here and, you know, give back to the community because a lot of stuff that we do grow here, we can give out to, you know, there's a place up the road called the Etna Centre and the Vineyards and obviously and other charities as well that we can uh, put the vegetables out to good use so they don't get wasted, so... Um, for me, it's it's just a feeling of peace. I don't know. I've just been having these great feelings when I come here. I feel closer to my mum and dad and just the birds around. It just lifts me, honestly. I, I just I can't believe it because I've never really been into gardening or anything like that ever, you know. So for, for me, this is absolutely massive. I'm just so happy. I mean, most of the time, at the beginning, I was more into the destructive side of gardening instead of actually learning and digging. And But learning so much, and Jane being an incredible teacher, I've learned so much being here. It's unreal.
with it, with, especially with all the the veg, the fruit, soils, you name it. It's unreal. Yeah, yeah. And also it gets me away from where I live in as well. So, bit of peace of mind. You're meeting people all the time. So once you get used to this place, it's kind of addictive. It's nice to come and mingle. And like in the background now, you see the people. They've all got their own little stories and things that they enjoy and and do. And Jane is like the the hub of it, you know. And it allows a lot of people like myself who would never mostly come here, you know, to be a part of that. Amazing. I loved meeting Jane and her inspiring community of volunteers. There's clearly such a strong bond there and it's really special to find this very personal and very local garden bursting with life in the corner of Kew Gardens' mighty London landscape. For me, it also cements the power that growing has to connect us not only to the land and to our food, but to physical activity, fresh air and friendships. It gives me hope to hear how Kew is working with world communities, to learn about traditions and plants that might also offer answers to feeding people in the face of climate change and food scarcity issues too. Growing may be one of the oldest traditions known to humankind, our knowledge and understanding is changing at an incredible rate thanks to international collaborations and science. I hope you're inspired to pot or plant something yourself after hearing these stories. In our final episode, Adfly is here to look at how our medicines and health connect with what we eat and how we can transform our own dining and cooking habits for a more sustainable planet. Thank you for listening to Unearthed Journeys into the Future of Food from Royal Botanic Gardens Q. I'm Poppy Okocha, and if you want to hear our next episode and all the rest of the podcasts from Q, follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite 